Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Before we begin today's story, an announcement and a short apology. Firstly, I'd like to apologise because at the end of the last podcast I said that this episode would be the start of branch two of the Welsh legends, the Mabinogion. It's been a busy old time here, and unfortunately this proved not to be possible. So we've got a story I've been meaning to tell for a while now as a stand-in. The Mabinogion content will still be coming, and definitely will be next episode. Secondly, after many months of threatening to do so, I've now set up a Patreon site for the podcast. I'm really delighted that some people have signed up already. So more on this at the end of the episode. Right, without any further ado, and to paraphrase Pink, let's get this story started. Oi, let me out! Let me out! The unfortunate new prisoner railed against the chains that held him to the wall. He rattled them, he shouted, he demanded, he was angry. He still had some life left in him. His silent, brutalised companions in the cells all around knew that that wouldn't last long. Hope withered and died here, followed shortly by the prisoners themselves. This was long ago, in the early days of the Merovingian Frankish kingdom. Those luxuriously locked, long-haired kings, descendants of the five-horned aquatic bull, dominated the lands of Western and Central Europe for a couple of hundred years. Though none of this seems particularly relevant to these unfortunate prisoners, who, at the whim of some local count, or more likely his subordinates, had been cast into this fetid place to work during the days and to waste away at night, with not even the pretense of a trial. So differently from today, those so incarcerated were hardly terrible criminals, their crimes ranging from looking at a noble funny, to the pettiest of thefts, to absolutely nothing at all except that the Count fancied himself some more of a slave workforce. So yes, I told a bit of a lie there, it's not that different from today at all. The more things change, eh? A few weeks and our energetic shouting prisoner had been much reduced by his toil, meagre rations and harsh punishment. And at this point, a new prisoner was introduced to his cell. The new man was composed and silent, not a shouter, he. He sat on the cold stone floor, deep in thought. His cellmate watched him. Around the neck of the newcomer was a simple cross. Wooden, not valuable enough for the guards to take it off of him. He was a Christian then. Of course, everyone was meant to be Christian now that the king was. But this was a big country, and ideas spread slowly here. And baptisms, well, they were more in vogue amongst the well-to-do. The new man eventually spoke up. Softly, but assuredly, he said, Sir, it's been a pleasure to make your acquaintance, but I am going to leave here now. The levels of sincerity and confidence in that voice 
moved the man who had lost all hope to laugh a little for the first time in so many weeks. You are, are you? Well, good luck to you, sir. I do hope it was not my company you found wanting. No, no, said the Christian. I just know that there's more to my life than this, and there's more that he intends for me, and he will not stand for this. Ah, he, that's your Jesus, isn't it? Well, I hope he works for you. I've tried asking him, and his dad, and Jupiter, and Odin, and even Clovis, if any of them will help me out. But none of those bastards seem to want to lend a hand. You don't believe me. And that's fine. But can I just ask you, do you want this life? What kind of question's that? Do I want to work to death in this awful place, being beaten by those sadists, living on meagre rations, waiting to die in a ditch? No, of course not. I want to be rich. I want to live a long and fulfilling life. But you can't think about that here. The Christian was silent for a few minutes before he said, Well, yes, of course. Then perhaps you'll join me in leaving. Oh, do shut up. But he was no longer listening. He was praying, speaking words under his breath. Towards the end of his prayer, his voice rose and his words could be made out. And so I implore you, Leonard, to see the injustice and to set me free. From somewhere unseen, there came a very slight, almost imperceptible sound, as though a choir were singing on some far-off distant hill. And then there was a metal click, and a crunch, followed by the noise of manacles hitting floor, the source of which was much more evident. The Christian clapped his now free hands together. Thank you, Leonard. He stood up, picked up the manacles that held him mere moments ago. His companion gazed up at him in astonishment. Now, they say he lives in the forest, takes in the previously imprisoned. He's building something there, and that's where I'm headed. Say his name if you wish to join me. So much of the time, religions ask non-believers to convert based on the power of faith. But the effectiveness of this pales into insignificance next to seeing a real-life miracle before your eyes. The astonished other prisoner was immediately the most fervent Christian convert there ever had been. Leonard, I am an innocent man who has done nothing. Free me and I shall gladly serve you. The choir, the click, the crunch, the falling of the manacles and the sound of metal hitting stone. The door to the cell swung open, and the men walked out free. Now before we go, we must gather our brothers, said the Christian, turning to the next cell. And soon every prisoner in the place was crying out the name of St. Leonard, and the instruments of oppression and restraint were everywhere in ruins. Centuries pass by, and in that time Christianity goes from a religion on the rise in Europe to basically the only player in the game on the continent, helped I'm sure by the many miracles wrought by its earliest adherents, like St. Leonard. 
and the fame of those saints spread with the religion, and their blessed names adorned all manner of holy places across Christendom. And so it was that many miles away from the place the now long-deceased St. Leonard preached, we find ourselves at the monastic site named St. Leonard's. We are in York now, Old York as I've humorously heard some Americans call it. York, the city for which God's own county of Yorkshire was named, was the seat of ecclesiastical power in the north of England, and boasted a wealth of religious houses and organisations. York Minster, that grand Gothic cathedral, was the centre of religious life in the city, but there were also a great many churches, both inside and outside the walls, and there were a dazzling variety of monastic orders. The famously narrow streets of the busy city were bustling with religious fervour. But let us draw our focus to the sacred place that was St. Leonard's Priory. St. Leonard's is but a few hundred metres from the Great Minster on one side, and even closer to the River Ouse on the other. At its rear was the Abbey of St. Mary, such that the walls of the two properties butted up against one another. And I wonder whether Brother Jucundus ever glumly considered the irony of his own position, given St. Leonard's contribution to the releasing of prisoners. I should back up. Jucundus, Brother Jucundus, that's not his given name, but his nom de monk, yep, that's what we're going with, his nom de monk, was one of the Priory's more unhappy residents. Now, how he turned out to be a monk? Well, it involved alcohol, a lot of alcohol. Alcohol, singing and general merriment were what Brother Jucundus was all about. This was definitely a guy you wanted at your party. Well, he definitely wanted to be at your party, and as long as you could get him out of the door before he vomited, wiped his mouth and gave a hey, and then started on his next keg stand, he'd be excellent company. But now he was a brother in the Priory, where he went to bed early, got up early, ate bread and vegetables, and drank a very small amount of beer, and where life was regulated hard and dull, dull, dull. The jolly Jucundus had joined after a few days of particularly heavy drinking. He had awoken, full of regret, full of never-drinking-againism, along with an empty money pouch and the slow recollection of having sent a slew of whatever the medieval equivalent is of embarrassing text messages to his boss and to his ex. I don't know, maybe it's carrier pigeons? Drunks grab carrier pigeons, scrawl a drunken note, send it on its way, think, oh, I really shouldn't have sent that pigeon. So... His life, after that particular night out, had reached a bit of a low, and the life of a monk looked, for a brief period, like a good escape from it all. But even then, that should be given some context, because monks had a certain reputation at that time for not having a perfect alignment between their stated morals and their actual day-to-day behaviour. And the very worst, or best, monasteries, depending on your perspective, were basically reputed to be taverns, gambling dens and brothels, all rolled into one building with the name of a saint on it. Monks behaving badly was a pretty well-known trope, and it's not unlikely that Jucundus believed that St. Leonard's would turn out to be a divinely permitted den of delightful debauchery and vice. But sometimes the press or the rumour mill exaggerate. Or maybe Jucundus was just unlucky, and missed joining a great many monasteries where his temperament would have been better suited. 
but he'd happened to walk into St. Leonard's. And here he had prayers and work and more prayers and more work and some chanting when things got really exciting and the whole deal was just interminable. And the aforementioned irony? Well, that came because the vows Jucundus had taken were irrevocable. To try to leave now was a crime. He was very much a prisoner here and the power of St. Leonard would not work to free him. As the first year passed, Jucundus's ruddy complexion waned along with his cheery demeanour and his lively spirit. As the sorry anniversary of his incarceration approached, it became a time for him to reflect on all that he had lost, and a little seed of rebellion germinated inside of him. How could men live like this? He could not. He knew that if things continued without a little excitement, he would grow more lonely and miserable and eventually expire from the melancholia this deadly dull place induced in him. He needed some merriment, some dancing, some drinking, some music, some singing. He needed to be where it was lively and busy, in the uplifting company of his fellow men, maybe even enjoying the pleasures of the flesh, or at least a little flirting. Activity, excitement, joy, a life outside of these bleak walls. As an aside, I'm telling this story during the COVID-19 lockdown. Just throwing that in there. No reason. Anyway, so... Jucundus resolved that he must do something, that he must have some jollification, as he termed it. Now, the day of York Fair approached, the most exciting time in the calendar of the folk of that city. The great fair offered ample opportunities for all the myriad jollifications Jucundus sought. He resolved that the fair it was to be. In the days leading up to it, Jucundus hatched his plan. The rhythm of the Priory's day was an unusual one for us now. The brothers went to bed at about 8pm, rose not long after midnight to get their first prayer of the day in, the matins as they were called, at the sociable hour of 2am. They had their kind of big meal of the day at midday, and after that they were fairly exhausted, so they all had an early afternoon snooze from 1pm to 2pm. The regular predictability of the days gave Jucundus his opportunity, and when the day to enact his own great escape came, he executed his scheme to perfection. The post-dinner siesta kicked off as usual. Within a few minutes the whole priory fell silent, save for the sounds of monks snoring. Jucundus opened his eyes. Ever so quietly, he got up. He tiptoed past sleeping brothers. There was one of those heart-stopping moments when he creaked on a floorboard and someone started to talk in their sleep. Oh, oh well, who, who's, who's that? Oh, Bessie, my love. Oh, it's, it's you. He relaxed. Then he tiptoed down to the porter's lodge at the priory gates. 
Oh, so carefully, he took the large bundle of keys from the porter, held that oversized ring tightly to prevent any suspect jangling. Then he let himself very quietly into the prior's apartment and took a couple of crowns from the money box aside the sleeping man. (sighs) Went the prior, head of the priory, unaware of the theft. And then, out, out of the priory gate. It was a lovely sunny day, so no standing in the rain topless and holding his outstretched arms to the stormy sky in utter elation for Brother Jucundus, though I imagine the ecstatic feeling of freedom was just as powerful, even though he had to keep his top on. Though they were unused to rapid movement, Jucundus's legs didn't fail him, and he made off for the fair at double-quick time. monks awoke from their nap as they always awoke, ready for an exciting afternoon of monking around. But they couldn't seem to find Brother Jucundus. The porter awoke and instinctively reached down to his belt for his keys, which were not there. The prior awoke, and as was his instinct, he went to count his money. There was less of it than before he had gone to sleep. I'm not really privy to whether Jucundus planned to get away with it, or just thought, damn the consequences. But whatever he expected, it didn't exactly take some CSI-type investigations for the details of what had happened to be pieced together by the monks. And Jucundus had really not helped himself by, in the weeks leading up to this, repeatedly mentioning to various of his fellows how much he used to love the fair, and then staring off wistfully into the middle distance. A crack team was put together to venture into the outsides. Two brothers, renowned for their steadfast resistance to all the temptations that the fair could offer. Not so much because their faith was strong and steadfast, a shield against the devil and his diabolical enticements, be it candy floss, strong beer, or a peck on the cheek. But no, because they were just really boring people. Colin Robinson types, who wouldn't know fun if it gave them a saucy wink and invited them to a cool house party. And these two exemplars of monkhood were sent out by the other brothers and made straight for York Fair. Jucundus was having an amazing time. All the joyful energy he'd been unable to use in the monastery came flooding out of him when he reached the hustle and bustle of the fairground. In these few hours of freedom, he'd seen both the dancing girls and the giantesses, who I assumed to be riot girl bands of the day. He'd consumed a prestigious volume of gingerbread houses and men. He'd drank several real ales, which they all were at this point in history. He'd shot nuts, which I believe was a pre-coconut, coconut-shy type arrangement, and which he proved to be great at, and so he had a pouch full of winnings and an oversized cuddly toy. And right now, he was riding the giant seesaw boat. You know, the pirate ship kind of ride, which apparently they had in the Middle Ages, and we are not going to question again. And because it was the Middle Ages, he was allowed to bring a mug of ale on it with him, 
and with some rather impressive manual dexterity, he was quaffing merrily from it as the ship swung up and down and up the other side. Cuddly toy next to him, he couldn't have been happier. By the way, if the activities Jacundus has enjoyed strike you as a more wholesome form of entertainment than you were expecting, well, me too. We can only assume the debauchery would commence later in the evening. The two boring monks ignored the rowdy crowds around them, the shows and the games and the fun. With the unwavering, unfeeling determination of two Terminators, they made their way straight for Brother Jacundus on the swing ship. The slightly sozzled escapee was rising into the air when they spied him, and at the top of his voice he was shouting joyfully, In dulce ubelo! Up, up, up we go! Because some of that Latin he'd learned had rubbed off on him. For those of you like me who weren't born to the upper classes, and so didn't enjoy the life trajectory of classics education at a private school, followed by PPE at Oxford, followed by a cabinet position, I should probably translate that. In dulce jubilo, which I'm probably mispronouncing, means something like in sweet rejoicing, and is basically, in this case, a well, hey, this is great! Jacundus's face radiated pure, mitigated joy, and he felt like himself again. In dulce jubilo, up, up, up we go! And down went the swing and Jacundus suddenly spotted the monks making their way through the crowds towards him. Ooh. He ignored all the warning signs and scrambled out of the swing, leaving his cuddly toy behind him, and, perhaps unsurprisingly, he landed on the ground with a thud. The boring monks were upon him in no time. This time Jacundus's legs did fail him, a bit because of the boozing, a bit from the fall, and a bit because of all that time he'd been shut up in a monastery. They failed him so much that the two reverend fathers had to get themselves a wheelbarrow to take him back to the priory. The prior stood at the gates, a hateful rage clouding his face. Jucundus looked up at him from his makeshift carriage, smiled happily. Hello, hello, in dulce you below. Jacundus's few precious hours of freedom were over. He'd expected them to be angry, of course, but he was still buzzing with bravado and head swimming with the booze when they brought him immediately for trial. And this was absolutely within the remit of the monasteries. This was before the dissolution, before the state waded in, and within those walls, the prior had power of judge, jury and executioner. The prosecution's case was easy enough to set out. That the defendant, as was plain from the state he was in, and the testimony of those two brothers sent out to fetch him, that he had snuck out of the priory, fraternised with locals, become rascally drunk on stolen money, and basically broken every vow that he had taken. There was no monk to disagree with this, and no hotshot lawyer jumped up to defend Jacundus on a technicality. The prior came to him. What have you to say, brother? Jacundus looked around at the sea of angry faces, still floating in his happy place, 
no realisation yet dawned that he was perhaps in rather more trouble than he had anticipated. He was minded in this mood to see the good in every man, and was quite sure his brothers, his friends, would understand his minor transgression. He looked at his fellows affectionately, and with a hiccup and a twinkle in his eye, he said, In dulce you below. Judgment was passed immediately. Jucundus was, of course, as guilty as a fox in a henhouse, and judgment was quickly followed by sentence. One word issued unwaveringly, unhesitatingly by the prior. Immurement. Which means walling up alive. Jucundus began to shake. Silently, they dragged the terrified man down to the cellar, begging, pleading. But there was no sympathy here. The sentence had been delivered. The grim task was to be done. A niche in the cellar wall was found. Mortar and bricks were procured. And within half an hour, Brother Jacundus was standing completely enclosed behind a brand new wall, some bread and water by his side. A twisted, cruel joke. Up until this point, this has been a light-hearted story. So let us take a moment to reflect on the real horrors here. Two distinct types of horror, at least. Firstly, the awful, agonising torture of Jacundus's position, left to die in absolute agony over days. The desperation, the madness, the sheer unimaginable awfulness of what he was being subjected to. Alone, starving, unable to move, in pain, terrified, and eventually, to die. And let us also reflect on the cruel, calculating evil of the organisation that could do this, the insidious, dangerous logic that compelled a group of people to gather together to torture and murder a fellow for the very slightest of reasons, and all in the name of a loving God and in that most ironic twist of the knife, in a place named after a saint who freed the imprisoned. Now, of course, this is just a story. But this isn't dragons or elves or ghosts we're talking about. This is exactly the kind of real story that's been repeated time and again throughout the history of humanity, and is to this very day. The sheer chilling evil of ideology, groupthink, of dehumanisation, of violence and murder wrought by men. A seemingly ever-true story, just the details of which change from generation to generation. Let's just take a moment and reflect on those twin horrors. But don't worry, from these depths it gets lighter. I just didn't want to pass over that without acknowledging it. Left alone, the terror rose in Jucundus. Adrenaline pumped through him. He beat his hands against the wall in front of him until his fists bled. But it was built strong. He cried and he wailed and he kicked and he rested his weight on the wall behind him. And he felt that wall sag. Its ancient crumbling mortar 
barely held the bricks together against his weight. He shifted his attention from the new wall to the old. He kicked backwards, felt a brick move. He kicked again, heard a brick fall. He pushed against the wall in front of him, pushed himself backwards. And suddenly, with a rumbling, falling brickwork and a great cloud of dust, the wall came down and Jucundus tumbled backwards atop of it. There were a few minutes of silence as the dazed and winded monk lay on some bricks in a cloud of slowly settling dust, a silence broken only by his occasional coughing. From somewhere far away, Jucundus half imagined he could hear the singing of a choir. Quite a lot had happened to him today, really. He'd started off the day as a normal monk. Then he'd escaped, had the best few hours in well over a year, but the alcohol hadn't worn off when he was sentenced to die, and then entombed in a claustrophobic hellhole he had now managed to escape from. It was a truly tumultuous, breathtaking roller coaster ride of a day. And really, he would just like to sleep now. But with some heroic effort, his body summoned up all the strength it had left. He had to get away. Now. Jucundus sat up. He was in a cellar, quite similar to the one behind the wall. It was dark but he could just about make out the dim light from a stairwell, a way out. Carefully he made his way to the stairs. There was a door at the top, but light came in from around it. Jucundus bent down, looked underneath the door, and what did he see but the feet of people passing by in some corridor, people clad all in white. It all fell into place. He was in the cellar of St Mary's Abbey. The building itself was only a few hundred metres or so from St Leonard's, and the cellars must run right up to each other, with just a thin partition wall between them. A wall that Jucundus had just broken down. For all his poor impulse control, Jucundus was not a stupid man, and he considered his next steps very carefully. First he went back down the stairs into the cellar. There were all kinds of barrels of what he was sure was alcohol down there, but nothing could have been further from his mind at that moment, and he ignored them all. As best as he could, he cleared away all evidence of the fallen wall, piled the fallen bricks neatly in a corner behind some of the barrels. It was dark down there, and he fancied that even in the event that someone did notice the wall was different, well, they wouldn't connect it to him if he was careful. Now it turned out the luck was on his side, for hanging in the cellar on a peg was a frayed old white robe. He bundled his old robe away into a corner and donned the Cistercian robe. Jucundus gave a fervent thanks to St. Leonard, St. Mary and Jesus Christ himself when he discovered that the door was of a type unlockable from the inside. He unlocked it, waited for a quiet time and out into the monastery he stepped.
Now, compared to St. Mary's, St. Leonard's had been a veritable frat house. At St. Mary's, the monks took vows of silence, broken only for song, prayer, and for one day of the year when speech was permitted, Easter Sunday. They worked harder here than in St. Leonard's. They slept on rigid boards and generally led a dreadfully dreary existence. But all of this worked somewhat to Jacundus' advantage. No one could ask him, who are you? Or even wonder, for it was not permitted to think of anything except one's own salvation and spiritual development. So all he needed to do was sit with the monks at dinner and he would get fed, find a board in the dormitory and there he could sleep. And no one had any reason to suspect that he had arrived in the abbey in anything but the most usual manner. And given the awful fate he had just avoided, Jucundus was happy just to be alive, and he slotted himself into the day-to-day life of the abbey without complaint, grateful for his unlikely survival. However, joy of escaping death is not a sustainable foundation on which to build a meaningful life, and this was especially true for Jucundus, a man whose temperaments were so ill-suited to the position he found himself in now. A year on and memories of last year at York Fair intruded more and more into the drudgery of the everyday. Almost forgetting the results of that excursion, Jugundus just remembered how wonderful it had been, how free he had felt, how at that time he felt far more in touch with a sense of the divine than he ever did at St Mary's or St Leonard's. But whilst getting in here had been easy, of a sort, getting out was not so. Monks didn't leave. He had no cunning plan, and he was a bit wary about trying to develop one given last year's events. But fate intervened on his behalf. Coincidentally, a week or so before York Fair, the cellar master expired. Very sad, of course, not that anyone had really been able to get to know him, but still a shame. Now, the abbot, for unscrutable reasons of his own, decided to pass the responsibility on to Jucundus. Given the vows of silence, I can only assume this was all explained by hand signals or maybe semaphore. Actually, hang on, I don't know what the rules on writing were. I kind of assume note passing was frowned upon, though you wouldn't be able to make them read it out in front of the whole class. But maybe it was okay if the abbot was doing it. Anyway, it was explained to him. Now, the role of the cellar master was to bring up from the cellar every single day a very small amount of the weak beer that the monks took with their meagre rations. However, on occasion the monastery might have important visitors, royalty or clerics from Rome, and for those occasions they kept a stock of fine wines and more expensive beers. The cellar master role was a vital part of abbey life, and for Jucundus to be trusted with it was a great honour. He was clearly going places, for some reason or another. And the day before York Fair, the abbot gave the key to the cellar to Jucundus, never suspecting that that cellar was the first place the brother had ever set foot in the abbey. Now for his part, Jucundus's head was still filled with notions of wild partying. And yes, you are probably well ahead of me in this story already, but just humour me for a moment. Now, after all the monks had gone to bed, down to the cellar goes Jucundus, lantern in hand, to look around, familiarise himself with his new job. 
There are all the barrels that a year ago interested him so little. But now? Now they looked very tempting. He took up an earthenware tankard. Couldn't hurt to have just a little. He turned on the tap of one of the more special barrels of ale, filled up his vessel, took a good long swig. Ooh, that was good. The tankard was empty in no time. He moved on to the next beer, and that went down easily too. The barrel after that, that was wine. Hmm, what was that rhyme? Beer after wine, then you'll feel fine. But with wine after beer, you've nothing to fear. Wine after beer, nothing to fear. So, no problem then. And he started on the wine. It was the absence of the small tipple of breakfast beer that started the discontent. Now the monks were silent and supposed to be thinking only of God, so signalling their displeasure was tricky. But slightly upset expressions, shuffling feet, holding up empty tankards with questioning raised eyebrows. All these methods were open to them and utilised by them. The abbot certainly got the message, and when the beer still failed to appear, and even the abbot's mug was empty, well... There had never been such disruption to the daily ritual. The cellar master brought the beer. That was what happened. And the abbot, the abbot thought that his choice had failed him. How did that reflect on him? He began to grow very angry. His face went red. And for the first time, he broke his vow of silence. I want my beer. Where is it? And the dam broken, there came a great flood of voices from the monks. A wild chant of beer, beer, beer echoed through the abbey's hallowed halls. Soon a maddened mob of unmuted monks rushed into the cellar. We want beer, we want beer, they screamed like an unruly mob of football hooligans. There, of course, they found Jucundus, bleary-eyed but still just awake, swinging his tankard above his head. Fine wine spilling out of it. In dulce jubilo, he somehow managed to get out, and as he was bodily carried up the stairs, followed that with a cheerful, Up, up, up we go! Events proceeded with a remarkable swiftness. The trial in this case, such as it was, was over and done in about as much time as you can recite Clause 39 of the Magna Carta, which states, No man of what state or condition he be, shall be put out of his lands or tenements, nor taken, nor disinherited, nor put to death, without he be brought to answer by due process of law. The sentence was passed. With bell, buck and candle, Jucundus was excommunicated in record time. Then they fetched some mortar, took Jucundus down to the cellar, stripped him of his holy robes, and, using a pile of old bricks that were conveniently lying around, they walled him into a niche in the cellar where he had committed his crimes. They left him with a mocking loaf of bread and a tankard of ale, given he liked it so much. 
All of this was done without so much of a moment's hesitation. Not bringing the beer clearly deserved execution. We've concentrated on the horror and hypocrisy before. Remember all that for a moment. The darkness that lurks in the heart of men is still just as present here. Now, Jucundus was once again in a bit of a pickle, but despite it all, he hadn't properly absorbed the seriousness of the situation. Having been given even less time than last year to sober up, he was still pretty sloshed in his tiny, uncomfortable prison. His feet kicked up against his robe from St. Leonard's. Oh, that's where that thing was. Now, things may have looked pretty dire again, but for want of anything else to do, Jucundus began to sing. Now in St. Leonard's, it was a year since the time they had walled up one of their own and left him to die an awful death. And the snap judgement, the speedy execution, well, they wouldn't admit it to one another. But this weighed somewhat heavily on the conscience of a few of them. And late that night, those who were more guilty took up lamps and made to descend into the cellar. There, on the anniversary of his immurement, They would light candles, hold a small vigil by the graveside of the sinner, and perhaps see him on to a better place, and absolve themselves of some of the guilt. It's difficult to convey the level of the shock and fear they felt when, cracking open the heavy door to the cellar, taking a few steps down, they heard from below an eerily familiar, cheery voice singing, Indulgence. You below, down, down, down we go. The monks looked at each other, ashen faced. They fled back upstairs, candles and lanterns dropped in their haste. This was some terrible revenant, seeking vengeance on them for their crimes. They shook. No, no, they looked at each other. They must have imagined it. Mass hysteria. Uh, just swamp gas. It was just swamp gas. Either the bravest of the bunch, or the timidest, most easily bullied one, stepped once again into the cellar, made his way down a few steps. It was silent. It had been swamp gas. He breathed a sigh of relief, hurried down a couple more steps, and Jucundus, who'd been taking a swig of beer, started his singing up once again. Da! The monk fled to the top of the stairs. There was definitely a ghost. After much deliberation, they went and woke the prior. The prior was, perhaps understandably, angry. Angry at being woken. Angry at this base superstition. And his anger was enhanced by his own suppressed guilt. How dare they bring this up? How dare they remind him of it? Jucundus had been a sinner. It was fine what they did. It was justified. It was the will of God. Furiously he took up the lantern, led the monks down the steps into the cellar, lifted the light up to the bare wall they had built a year before. See, brothers, just your imagination. In dolce jubilo, up, up, up we go. The prior gave a terrified shriek, dropped the lantern, 
and fainted clean away. Jucundus could hear them from behind the wall, and now he had a plan. His muffled voice came. Hello, brothers. A very good evening to you all. Been waiting for you. In Dulce, you below. Down, 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 this wall must go. In some of the brothers, a certain practicality took over from the fear, and grabbing some of the tools they'd used to construct the wall, or just going at it with their hands, they obeyed the impossible voice of Brother Jucundus. And as the wall fell, there he was, looking jolly, a little drunk, but very well for a man who had spent a year in a wall. A perfectly fresh loaf of bread was next to him, an earthenware mug, almost full with beer, was in his hand. In Dulce, you below, Jucundus cried triumphantly, and took a swig from his ale. situation developed at pace. Word quickly spread of a miracle in the cellar. The prior of St. Leonard soon found himself a new priory elsewhere to go and be head of, where he wouldn't be reminded of the man that he'd unjustly sent to execution, who'd stayed alive for a year in a war. A mixture of awe, fear, guilt, and a genuine belief in the miraculous power of this man, who had spent a year in a wall and come out singing, meant that the brothers unanimously chose Jucundus to be the replacement prior, and he was installed as the head of St. Leonard's within the week. And over the years, he did very well in that position, with the priory becoming well-known for its more relaxed and joyful approach to worship. Jucundus was there at the head of it all, with tankard in his hand, a kind word and a friendly smile. Well, he was there for 364 days of the year at least, 365 in leap years. But one day, every year, the day of York Fair, he would retire to his quarters and be seen by no one until very late the next morning, looking slightly dishevelled, but exceptionally full of good cheer, and greeting all who passed him with the words, In Dulce Ubelo. So, this story then. A light-hearted, jolly romp about an attempt at an awful execution. Did I highlight the dissonant juxtaposition enough, do you think? Maybe I overdid it slightly. Now, as usual, there's a bit to talk about here. Firstly, I'm going to throw it out there that I didn't use the word liminal to describe the space between the walls in which Jucundus was trapped, which, given his transition between the two monasteries, would have been absolutely perfect. This failure basically means I will never be allowed into the hallowed hall of the academic folklore community, so that's a bummer. Might use it in the episode description, maybe that'll let me get away with it. Secondly, I resisted making the monks of St. Leonard do a particular V sign whenever they greeted each other. I kind of wish I'd put that in now. Anyway, let's talk a little on the origins of this story. On a personal note here, I used to live in York and have actually seen the ruins of both St. Mary's and St. Leonard's. They are real places, now located in York's museum gardens. You can go and see them, have picturesque photos taken with them. The museum that's there now is well worth a visit. The gardens have a little storytelling area, which obviously appeals. And if you sit still in the garden for a couple of minutes with some food, you'll be mobbed by some incredibly tame and therefore very aggressive squirrels which will run all over you. It's positively delightful. 
Most of the two abbeys are a ruin, but there is a separate building, the Hospitium, which was once a separate bit of St Mary's where guests were housed, away from the monks and presumably served great beers and expensive wines. I've been there myself for a Viking wedding no less, because that's the kind of thing that happens in York. Now I will point out before it gets pointed out to me that St Leonard's was actually a large religious hospital and Gnostic priory. I kind of assume that was changed to make this story work better. So, the origin of the tale. Firstly, that bit about the prisoners and St Leonard at the start was my own addition. However, the shackles falling off prisoners was very much part of his story. The story of Jucundus and his miraculous escape was one that I heard told sometime not long after I moved to York. I wouldn't say it's widely known at all, but because it's tied to such a specific location, it has made its way into the retinue of some local storytellers. And I actually really enjoy the story. It's simple, it's silly. If you ignore the horror, it's just kind of amusing. And maybe it's just me, but Jucundus is such a likeable, identifiable whiff character. So, where did the story come from? Well, guess what guys? That's right, it's a 19th century folklorist. And actually, it's one of the big hitters we've not mentioned yet. The Reverend Sabin Baring Gould is perhaps best remembered now for having written the hymn Onward Christian Soldiers, but he was also an incredibly prolific author and a folklorist of a sort. There's a lot to say about the Reverend, who was one of those people who appears to have done more than is possible within a single lifetime. However, in all of that, I'm going to mention that, according to at least one source, he had a pet bat that hung to his shoulders while he taught classes. Which is amazing, and I'm not going to dig too deep into it to find out whether it was really true. I want a pet bat. Now, when it comes to folklore, he's perhaps best remembered for two things. Firstly, his large collection of folk songs from Devon and Cornwall, and secondly, his 1865 book on werewolves. But he was for much of his life a resident of Yorkshire, and amongst his many works was one called Yorkshire Oddities, Incidents and Strange Events. It's a bit of a mishmash of a book really, consisting stories that range from pretty much village gossip about people with unusual habits, to short biographies of lesser known historic Yorkshire figures, to Fortean Times type tellings of ghost sightings. And it's in this book that we find the story of Brother Jucundus. Now, immurement as a theme is a very old one. Stories can be found about it from across the world. And in particular, there are stories of nuns being walled up as a punishment. Sir Walter Scott wrote that a skeleton so concealed was found in a wall in Coldingham Priory in Scotland. Though I've not actually verified whether that's true, there were certainly stories that existed about it and it does seem to be very likely that something like that may have really happened at least on occasion so it makes sense for this to be an old story now i think it's worth just mentioning that there are two very famous cultural representations of this practice that i'm aware of and people might be familiar with now one of course is edgar Allan poe's the cask of amontillado which like this story features a cellar full of alcohol Pre-Poe, there were several very similar stories he drew inspiration from, though none with the happy ending of the Brother Jucunda story. And secondly, to go to a very different reference, there is a Thomas the Tank Engine episode, which I remember from being a child, and which has, subsequently, achieved a certain notoriety on the internet. 
In this episode, the train Henry refuses to come out of a tunnel because it's raining. Eventually, and I kid you not, the Fat Controller orders him to be walled up and left there, quote, for always and always, unquote. And there he is left, in that tunnel. It's on YouTube if you want to watch it, and the story makes very clear that Henry definitely deserves his punishment. It is deeply disturbing viewing for children or adults. It's not really relevant here, but I kind of had to mention it. So we've wandered away from the point somewhat here. I wanted to know where the story came from originally. Which old book did Sabin get his inspiration from? So, this York tale in this book about Yorkshire folk tales... Well, I went and tried to track down the source, having already started on this episode. And the funny thing is that as far as I can tell, it's not a traditional tale at all. Sorry about telling it here, but I was already well into it, and it sort of still counts. But it's worse than that. Far worse than that. The Hole in the Wall, a merry metrical and monastical romance, was written by Edward Henry Palmer in 1860. Which, by the way, is over a decade after the Casco Amontillado. It's here that we first find the Brother Jacunda story. It's very clearly fiction, it's presented as nothing else. Now, the author, Edward Henry Palmer, is an interesting figure himself, though not a folklorist. He was a Cambridge professor who spoke many languages, but had a particular interest in Persian, Arabic and Turkish. He travelled widely and was known as an adventurer, and he was eventually killed in Egypt when working for the British government. Given his background, the hole in the wall was a very atypical piece of work from him, and it appears to have been written during his recovery from a particularly severe bout of tuberculosis. So, what's that big problem I alluded to? Well, its subtitle is A Legend of Walthamstow Abbey. Now, Walthamstow and Waltham Abbey, which is probably what is meant here, are in London. The tale which I'd always taken to be a genuine old Yorkshire story is actually a creation of a Cambridge professor set in the South. Awful. Now, while I've no direct evidence for it, I can only assume that Sabin Baring Gould found this story, or maybe somebody else did in the meantime, and relocated it to York. If it was Baring Gould who did this, putting it in a book of Yorkshire tales seems particularly cheeky. Now, the story as told with St Mary's and St Leonard's actually make it make a lot more sense. In the original story, the other abbey isn't even named, but referenced as St Somebody's, and the author says he just can't remember the name. So, clearly the Yorkshire version is better, yes? Now, The Hole in the Wall is not a piece of prose, but is written in, let's call it poetry. It's a kind of doggerel verse which yet has grand pretensions with its use of grandiloquent terms and a smattering of Latin. It's kind of bad, but almost certainly intentionally so, applied for humorous reasons in the same way many memes are written in misspelt English. The whole piece smacks very much of the Inglesby legends, and while I'm no expert, I'd wager that it's a direct homage to the Inglesby style, though I don't feel it's quite as well executed. We've talked about the Inglesby legends a little bit before. The Hand of Glory episode is one of them. In brief, there are a series of mostly invented stories that purport to be very old, 
told very humorously using a similar style of dodgy verse, and they were pretty damn popular. For an illustration of this style in the whole of the wall story, I'll read a little extract about the monks discovering Jucundus was gone. Quote, they all began to ask each other, Why? Where on earth's our worthy brother? The darker grew the abbot's brow, and everyone could see a row was pending, as he sternly asked, When had they seen Jucundus last? Unquote. Yep. Painful stuff. Now, apart from the location, there are other differences. Sabin seems to have added the whole in dulce below bit as well. And that's about it, really. So, even though it sounds old and from Yorkshire, it's not. But I hope you enjoyed it anyway. Now, before we conclude, just a few more bits of business, I suppose. Firstly, as I mentioned in the opening, the podcast now has a Patreon page. We'll be doing short bonus episodes with Patreon members and money from the Patreon will be used to improve the podcast setup here, get a better microphone, and I'm also investigating getting artwork done for some of the rarer stories. Thank you so much for the members who have supported us already. Hannah, who found the Patreon even before the page was officially launched, Liam, Jules, Chris, Tia and the Fairy Folk, which is another great podcast you should check out by the way. It's difficult to really talk about this without sounding very cheesy, but I really am incredibly grateful and slightly surprised at the support. I'm hoping to have the first short members episode by the end of July, so if you're interested in listening to that, then please do find us on Patreon. Next time, I promise we will have the first part of Branch 2 of the Mabinogion for you, and I really hope you'll join us again for that. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Music